This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Warning. The following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I'm here with my girlfriend Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today we are going to go ahead and get started on the trial. We did mention last episode, we weren't sure if we were going to split it, but we decided, yes, we are going to split it. So you guys just get more content. It's fine. Today, we will be talking about the prosecution and kind of going over some information with that. And then the next OJ episode, Jess will pick up with the defense and we will go into all the stuff. Yes. But to go ahead, I'm just going to go ahead and dive on in. So we, when covering the trial portion of this massive case, we wanted to each share the opening statements because we felt those were important. So I'm going to start with the Deputy District Attorney, Christopher Darden. He did the first part of the opening statement, and I have a transcript of kind of majority of it. Here we go, guys. Your Honor, Judge Ito, Mr. Cochran, and Mr. Shapiro, and Dean Ullman, and to my colleagues seated here today in front of you, and to the real parties in interest of this case, the Brown family, the Goldman family, and the Simpson family, and to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good morning. I think it's fair to say that I have the toughest job in town today, except for the job you have. Your job may be a little bit tougher, but your job, and like my job, both have a central focus, a single objective, and that objective is justice, obviously. We're here today, obviously. Man, that's like his favorite word. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. I was just like, the obviously. Is- <laughs> obviously. Uh- <laughs> To resolve an issue to settle a question, a question that has been on the minds of the people throughout the country these last seven months. Did O.J. Simpson really kill Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman? Well, finally, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here in front of you this morning to answer that question. And we will answer that question from the witness stand and from the exhibits you'll see in this case and from the evidence. And when you see the evidence and when you hear the witnesses and when you put it all together and consider the totality of circumstances in this case, the answer will be clear to you as well. The answer to the question is yes. The evidence will show that the answer to the question is yes. O.J. Simpson murdered Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. 
Why? Why would he do it? Why would he do it? Not O.J. Simpson. Not the O.J. Simpson we think we know. Not the O.J. Simpson we think we've seen over the years. We've seen him play football at USC. We've watched him play against UCLA, play in the Rose Bowl. We've watched him win the Heisman Trophy. He may be the best running back in the history of the NFL. We watched him leap turnstiles and chairs and run into the airplane in Hertz commercials. We watched him in Naked Gun 33 and one third. We've seen him time and time again. We came to think that we know him. What we've been seeing, ladies and gentlemen, is just a public face, a public persona, a face of the athlete, a face of the actor. It is not the actor who is on trial here today, ladies and gentlemen. It is not the public face. It's the other face. Like many men in public, there's a public image, a public side, a public life. He may also have a private side, a private face. And that is the face we will expose to you in this trial, the other side of O.J. Simpson. The other face that Nicole Brown encountered almost every day of her adult life, the face she encountered at the last moment of her adult life, the face that encountered Ronald Goldman during his last moments of life. The evidence will show that the face you see, and the man you will see, is the face of a batterer, a wife beater, an abuser, a controller. You will see the face of Ron and Nicole's murderer. To understand what happened, we need to examine the defense's relationship with Nicole. You'll see his motive for killing his ex-wife as you hear the evidence in the case. That motive will become clear. He killed Nicole, not because he hated her. He didn't hate Nicole. He didn't kill her because he didn't love her anymore. He killed her for a reason almost as old as mankind itself. He killed her out of jealousy. He killed her because he couldn't have her. And if he couldn't have her, he didn't want anybody else to have her. He killed her to control her. Control was a continuing thing, the central focus of the entire relationship. By killing Nicole, the defendant assumed total control of her. By killing her, nobody could have her. He killed Ron Goldman for another reason. He killed Ron Goldman because he got in the way. He killed Nicole because he had a problem with her, as men and women sometimes do in relationships. They have a problem, and this defendant's problem demanded a courtroom. I think he stated the problem rather eloquently as he stood over her body at her wake. And he said then, and he said on other occasions, and I quote, he said while standing over Nicole's body, my problem was that I loved her too much. It wasn't really love. It was an obsession. But it wasn't really love, ladies and gentlemen. This will be reflected in the evidence, and the evidence will establish that it wasn't really love. What this defendant had for Nicole Brown was not love. It was an obsession. He became obsessed with her, and his obsession was so great that he developed a need to control her. And his need to control and his obsession was so great that when he came to realize that he could not keep her, he killed her. Because to let her go would mean to lose control of her. To let her go with Ron Goldman or someone else would mean to lose control. He couldn't have her, and neither could anyone else. Now, the evidence in this case will establish that the man in the courtroom, this defendant, is an extremely controlling, obsessive man. And as I've said before, the control and obsessiveness was the single dominant theme in their relationship, and he controlled her in a variety of ways. He controlled her financially. When the defendant first met Nicole, she was barely 18. He was almost 30. She shared an apartment, and he owned a mansion. She waited tables at a restaurant. He was a millionaire. No one had ever heard of Nicole Brown, but he was one of the most recognized men in America. But after he met her, he slowly began to control her. She shared an apartment with a friend. He got her her own apartment. He bought her things. He gave her things. By the time she was 19, she was driving a Porsche. He got it for her. He began to gain control over her. As the years went on and they continued to date, and as he gained more and more control of her, the more control he gained, the more abusive he became. As you listen to the evidence of this case, you're going to hear the evidence regarding domestic abuse, violence, intimidation, physical abuse, wife beating, and public humiliation. As you listen to the trial and as you hear the evidence and see this evidence, please keep in mind that all of these different kinds of abuse were all different methods to control her. 
The evidence will show in this case that he abused her mentally. He stripped her of her self-esteem. This defendant dictated the way Nicole was dressed. He dictated the way she could wear her hair. But demeaning her and controlling the purse strings and isolating her and isolating her into who she would see and who her friends would see and who they would not see wasn't all this defendant did to control this woman. There were more powerful forms of control. There's force, there's violence, there's fear, there's intimidation. And you will hear the testimony, you will see the evidence that in his quest for controlling Nicole, this defendant used all of these things. I mentioned earlier that they met when she was 18 years old back in 1977. They dated for eight years, and they eventually married in 1985. The marriage was a stormy marriage, and it was a marriage punctuated by acts of violence, and that violence would always be followed by an apology. He would apologize, give her jewelry, buy her flowers. He would promise to do better, promise to maintain control of himself, and he would promise to not do it again. And then those acts of violence followed by additional acts of violence, and it became a cycle. Violence, apologies, a period of quiet and calm, then violence and apologies, quiet and calm on and on and on. The cycle of violence characterized their relationship. It characterized their marriage. You'll hear testimony in this case from Nicole's mother, and she'll tell you about some of the telephone conversations she had with the defendant after 1992 and some even more recent. In one conversation, he told her, quote, all my friends tell me that I should just leave her alone, just forget about her, just go on with my own life. And when Mrs. Brown said, why don't you do that? Why don't you let her go? If you let her go, then maybe she'll come back to you. Just let her go and maybe she'll come back. And his response was, I can't. You know I can't. You know I can't help myself. I can't let her go. He couldn't let her go. He couldn't help but pursue her. Still, she stayed. She remained involved, not only in the sense that he was the father of her children, but she attempted to reconcile. And over the months of October of 1993, they tried to get back together and they failed. They tried to get back together and they failed. In May of 1994, Nicole, it was Nicole's birthday. The defendant gave her a very nice gift, a piece of jewelry they attempted to reconcile for lack of better description, but the evidence will show that it was a very brief attempt because a few days later, Nicole called it quits. She woke up to the true reality of her situation. She couldn't be bought anymore. She couldn't live like that. And the evidence will show that she let the defendant know that it was over. That's it. Oh my God. <laughs> I forgot this was in here. He literally says, hasta la vista. <laughs> like, how 90s. <laughs> It was it was extremely 90s. <laughs> okay. She had had enough, and the evidence will show that she let the defendant know that. And the evidence will show that finally, after 17 years, he finally got the message. It finally became clear that she wanted to live her own life, and he was not going to be a part of it. He could not accept that loss of control. He wouldn't, and he didn't. On June 12th, a dance recital was held in Brentwood for the defendant's daughter, Sydney. The entire Brown family went to the recital, as did some friends, Candace Garvey, for instance. The auditorium was crowded, so not everyone could sit, you know, next to a family member. And so their party was. There were people between them. He sat behind the Browns for a few moments, but then got up and he grabbed the chair and dragged into a corner of the auditorium, turned that chair around, and he sat in it. He sat there facing Nicole and just stared at her. He just sat there staring at her. You'll hear testimony about this, and the evidence will show that this was a menacing stare, a penetrating stare. It was an angry stare, and it made everyone feel uncomfortable. When the recital was over, there was a little issue of whether or not the defendant was allowed to give Sydney some flowers. He gave her some flowers. But the Brown family had decided to go over to the Mezzaluna restaurant for dinner, and as they left, they made it clear to the defendant that he was not invited. Also, please keep like these. De I know it's like kind of rehashing, but keep these details in mind, especially because like think back to when we were talking about his book. Right. Just saying. like that fucker. is. That's like, why this is important. 
Just kidding. Opposite. I'm always welcome. Opposite. Yes. That's why this was important. (laughs) Okay. Not inviting him. It was a reaffirmation of what he had already been told. And that was that he was no longer being treated as part of the family. He was no longer the central centerpiece of every family outing. Nicole was getting on with her own life. And as the Brown family left, they looked toward the defendant and they saw him and he was angry and he was depressed and they were concerned. And everyone wondered... What is he up to now? Miss Clark will tell you exactly what the defendant was up to as the day proceeded on. But there are some things you should know about this evidence and as you hear it. This is not a character assassination. This is not a tabloid prosecution. The evidence you will hear in this case will be evidence that the defendant is lying. His conduct, the things he did, the evidence of his relationship with one of the victims. And as you hear the evidence and as you hear Miss Clark, you'll see that Ron Goldman happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. As you listen to the evidence, you will see his decision to kill was merely a final link in the progressive chain of controlling conduct. It was a chain that consisted of fear and intimidation and battery and emotional and mental abuse and economic abuse and control and stalking. And you'll see that there is a common scheme, a common plan in all of this. And this was to control, to control her. It was all designed just to control Nicole. In controlling her, it was depriving the man, depriving O.J. Simpson, who was the defendant, who committed that final ultimate act of control. She left him. She was no longer in his control. He was obsessed with her. He could not stand to lose her, so he murdered her. And as you hear the evidence in this case, it will become clear that, in his mind, she belonged to him. And if he couldn't have her, then nobody could. And they keep on going because we also have Marsha Clark, who, if you guys have watched anything on this, like there's a lot of stuff with her. Um, And I'm going to kind of go through some excerpts from her opening statement, which was like obviously right after Christopher Darden. Mm -hmm. So Marsha, Deputy District Attorney, she said, now you've heard why. Why would Orenthal James Simpson, a man who seemingly had it all commit such heinous crimes to throw it all away? The one simple truth about the evidence described to you by Mr. Darden is that it shows that Mr. Simpson is a man, not a stereotype, but of flesh and blood who can do both evil and good. Being wealthy, being famous cannot change one simple truth. He's a person and people have good sides and bad sides, whether you see both sides or not. Both sides are always there. That is so important. That is so, so, so important. Very true. Asterisk, highlight, star, that statement. (laughs) Tuck away. Uh, Yes. Pocket that, bitch. All right. Now we will show you the other side of the smiling face you saw in the Hertz commercial, the one you never saw on camera, the one none of us ever wanted to see. And that was the side that went from Rockingham at his estate to Nicole's home at 875 South Bundy on the night of June 12, 1994. Now on that night, many events were happening at the same time. And in order to give you a true picture, the most clear and accurate picture of what really happened... How the events occurred. I'm going to go back and forth between the parties and between locations. Just as me and Jess did. Because, you know, that's like, that's just like, that's just how you have to do it. Because there was so much going on. Right. Like, you just had to. With respect to the timing, the evidence will show that on the night of June 12, 94, the defendant had an hour and 10 minutes of time in which his whereabouts are unaccounted for. And we will show that it was during that hour and 10 minutes that the murders were committed. And so the evidence will prove that Cato last saw the defendant on the night of June 12th at 9.35 at the latest. He did not see the defendant again until after 11 p.m. In between those two times, at 10.15, a dog is heard barking, and that evidence will show was Nicole's dog, which we talked about, which fixes the time at which the murders occurred. At 10.45, Cato hears thumps on his wall, and shortly after 11, he saw the defendant, an hour and 10 minutes, during which the murders occurred, in which the defendant's whereabouts are unaccounted for. 
Apart from the test results, ladies and gentlemen, the mere fact that we find blood where there should be no blood in the defendant's car, in his house, in the driveway, and even on the socks in his very bedroom at the foot of his bed, that trail of blood from Bundy through his own Ford Bronco and into his house in Rockingham is devastating proof of guilt. The results of the analysis of that blood confirms that the rest of the evidence will show that on June 12, 1994, after a violent relationship in which the defendant beat her, humiliated her, and controlled her, after he took her youth, her freedom, and her self-respect, just as she tried to break free, Orenthal James Simpson took her very life in what amounted to his final and his ultimate act of control. In that final and terrible act, Ron Goldman, an innocent bystander, was viciously and senselessly murdered. We asked if you could use your common sense and reason to fairly and objectively evaluate this evidence as neutral and partial judges of the facts. You all promised that you could and that you would, and we believe that you will. We have every faith and belief in the fact that you will keep, that you will all keep that promise, but it will not be easy. You will be tested and tempted throughout the case to accept the unreasonable and be distracted by the irrelevant. The defense will talk to you about possibilities. They'll insinuate many sinister things based on those possibilities, possibilities of contamination, possibilities of setup, all in an effort to explain away all of the physical evidence. But possibilities alone do not equal proof. You've heard the instructions that says that all matters subject to human affairs are capable of some possible doubt. That's why the standard is reasonable doubt. And you'll hear the word reasonable more than once in the jury instructions. And you already have because it's the proof standard was beyond all possible doubt that there could never be a conviction. There can always be a possible doubt about something. The question is whether you have a doubt that is founded in reason. So beware of the efforts to try to get you to accept the unreasonable, be distracted by the irrelevant, and abase your decision on speculation, on mere possibilities with no hard evidence to show that any of them really occurred. You're going to have to be ever vigilant in acting as the judges in this case. Each one of you is a judge. Each one of you is a trier of fact. You have to examine all of the evidence carefully and ask yourselves, is this reasonable? Is this logical? Does this make sense? Would I look at this evidence the same way? And at this point, there's an objection by attorney Johnny L. Cochran Jr. And he says, you know, he's objecting because he says she's starting to argue now. And Judge Ito says, sounds like an argument to me. And Clark continues, look at the evidence the same way you would for any other case. Now, winning is not what this is about. This is not a game. This is about justice and seeing that justice is done. Two people have been brutally murdered, and the evidence consistently will point to the guilt of only one person as the murderer. Very true. Just very true. Mm -hmm. There was no rush to judgment in this case. It was very carefully considered before it was filed. The evidence will show, ladies and gentlemen, that as of June 15th, many DNA results have already been returned. As of June 15th, there have already been a match between the defendant and the blood found at Bundy Drive. They had already been a match between the victims and the blood found on the glove at his house. My job is to seek justice. I've had cases like this one before, and there will be cases after it. This case is not about the lawyers, myself, Mr. Hodgman, Mr. Darden, or Mr. Cochran. We have to remember what this case is about, and justice for all. Ladies and gentlemen, if those words are to mean anything, we must all be equal in the eyes of the law, and we cannot use a sliding scale to judge guilt or innocence based on the defendant's or victim's popularity. On behalf of all of us putting up the rigors of being sequestered, we all know it's difficult, and we appreciate all of your dedication to duty and service in this case. Thank you very much. And that was the prosecution's um, opening statements. I felt those 
that point of view, especially with her, was just very powerful and very fair because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like that is the most important thing. The most important thing is for Nicole and Ron to have justice. Exactly. And that's what they're saying. And they're like, look, we have a way to prove that this is what happened and provide these victims justice. That's that's what they're doing. So because obviously that, of course, was a bit lengthy. I'm going to go over some stuff about the prosecution's case and some of the evidence. But obviously, we're going to talk about this more in the defense and how the verdict goes and all of that. So uh, yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be a lot of conversation. I'm excited about it. The prosecution's case, there's two pieces of physical evidence that they relied on. A glove found in OJ Simpson's possession that matched one found at the crime scene. And we will talk about that glove a lot in the next episode. Very much so. (laughs) DNA evidence that linked OJ to the crime scene, uh, the blood that's been referred to a lot. So basically, the prosecution's case was that in the course of murdering Nicole and Ron, OJ cut his hand, which we've seen pictures of the the cut on his hand, allowing drops of blood to be found at the crime scene and leading away from it in his car, as we've seen, and at his residence. And the prosecution argues that blood spatter transferred from the victims to OJ during the murders had been transferred to his car from his person. So not saying he, you know, did anything with their bodies in his car, but basically like that spatter obviously got on him and he was touching stuff in his car. If this is what you believe, that's that's what they're that's what they're putting out there to explain that how that got there. So from his person and from the glove, that we mentioned. Prosecution speculated that OJ had worn a pair of socks that were found to contain Nicole's DNA while committing the murder. And the case was that OJ had disposed of all of the clothing he wore while committing the crime, except for those socks, because he was unaware that they were stained from Nicole's blood because they were black socks, which would make sense. Over the course of the trial, the prosecution has 72 witnesses. This is a long trial. This is a long fucking trial because it's like... Yeah, you hear 99 days, but that's going off of like a like business days because right. the business week is obviously only Monday through Friday. So that's what drug it out even more. And you have to think like there were holidays in there mm-hmm. and things like that. Yup. So it yep. Ex- it. Exactly. Exactly. So the first group of witnesses included relatives and friends of Nicole, friends of OJ and a 911 dispatcher. And this was to show the motive and obviously this long history of domestic abuse. I don't know if it's just because I already knew this, like in reading my notes back, obviously, or if we had talked about this, but Denise Brown, who we've mentioned quite a few times, obviously speaks and they talk about the recital and that scary stare that I mentioned in the opening statements. She had testified that Simpson looks scary, like a madman. And she told of a dinner attended by her, Nicole, and other friends in which OJ grabbed Nicole's crotch and said, this is where babies come from and this belongs to me. How fucking gross. Mm-hmm. And she also talked about an incident in which OJ was like in a rage, picked up her sister, Nicole, and threw her against the wall. Like, that's the thing. He's doing, he's done stuff like this in front of other people and not gave a flying fuck, but then tried to be like, oh, I only hit her once, which once is still too many. But that's what he tries to blow it off as. He's gaslighting big time. He's such a narcissist. And like, I mean, we all know how this part, guys. Yeah, we know how this ends. Yeah. And that can only feed into the narcissistic behavior of his life. Mm -hmm. And fucking Ron Ship, who is or was 
friends with OJ, literally said that OJ told him, quote, I've had some dreams of killing Nicole. Like straight up just says it. Just straight up says it. Right. And like I said, a 911 dispatcher took the stand and they go over the, the the terrifying call because she's like like we've mentioned, like she's called 911 so many fucking times. 911 calls are recorded. It's there. Right. That's not fake. That's real. Like, and it's scary, guy. It is so scary. Like, if you guys have not heard any of those, like a lot of the more recent documentaries have audio from it. And it's just it's a lot. It is so much. Like, I will sit there and just be like. This is ridiculous. Yes. The only excuse is that he was a celebrity and he was well-liked by the LAPD. Corruption. So on top of that, because like I said, there's tons of witnesses. So they also had Alan Park, who was the limo driver, Cato, of course, as we all know. And they had LAPD officers, which we'll talk more about later in Jess's (laughs) for that piece of shit and other people so the limo driver alan right he was super young by the way i did not picture him to be so young when this like oh for sure like when i finally saw him i was like whoa like i expected like some older dude i don't know something for sure yeah poor kid so he testified that he arrived at the simpson home on rockingham at 10 25 to grab oj for his scheduled flight to chicago he said he rang the doorbell and obviously jess has already went over this but i'm just reiterating for you guys he rang the doorbell repeatedly but received no answer shortly before 11 according to park a shadowy figure who he described as, quote, black, tall, about 200 pounds and wearing dark clothes, end quote, walked up the driveway and entered the house. And a few minutes later, OJ came out telling Park that he had overslept. And Park said that when OJ entered the limo, he carried a small black bag, which the prosecution hoped the jury would conclude contained the murder weapon and said that OJ would not let him touch it. And the bag has never been seen since. And a skycap at the at LAX testified that he saw Simpson near a trash can. So do with that what you will. And Cato obviously like takes a stand. Like I feel like that's like one of the more famous witnesses because he participate he's participated in documentaries and specials and stuff on this case since. And during his, he testified that he and OJ went and got Big Macs and fries and stuff at McDonald's at 936. And that he couldn't account for his whereabouts after that. And like we mentioned, the thumping on the walls and all of that, it's just a lot. And they present, you know, that Simpson called Paula, which we know, but the defense doesn't, you know, try to explain any of that because it's kind of like, well, I mean, he was just calling Paula because of course he was. But what's interesting is there was like a statement that at this time he he was like, oh, I was practicing golf. But it's like, but you're in your car phone calling Paula, according to phone, rec- phone records. Right. Interesting. And in his book, <sighs> he says that the reason he was on the car phone is he was in the car when he did that is because that's where his phone was. Yeah. So the evidence that they presented was technical and circumstantial, relating mostly to the results of blood, hair, fiber, and footprint analysis from Nicole's house and from Simpson's house in Rockingham. What's described as the most compelling testimony was the concerned uh, two RFLP tests. The first indicated that the blood found at the crime scene would have only come from one out of 170 million sources of blood, and Simpson fit the profile. That's so like <laughs> that is wild. I'm sorry. So Are you like, gonna like turn around and say you're the most un- like I'm so unlucky that that that's I got those odds. I got those odds. 
Jones. Like, fuck off. <laughs> but that's, they don't even do that. They don't even, like, address it. They don't. No, no, no. I'm just, like, saying, like, you know, OJ would have been like, oh, by the way, I guess I just have really shitty luck. Oh, like, right. No. But. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but they, but here's the thing. Oh, no. We're not going to go into that. <gasps> You know, for next episode. It's fine. It's fine. I'm just doing very, like, brief letting them know. So you guys, a lot of my stuff pocket because so much, like, obviously this all comes up again in the defense and we'll go more into details then. Jesus, I just had to lay the groundwork for you guys because it's just ridiculous. The second came from blood found on the socks. According to prosecution testimony, only one out of 6.8 billion sources of blood matched the sample. Nicole Brown Simpson might well be the only person on earth whose blood matched the blood found on the socks. Just saying. So there's that. Just saying. There's that. And to kind of wrap us up here on the evidence also presented today, guys. So, well, not today, obviously, but like, you know, from the prosecution. (laughs) So, like I said, they had the 911 call and all of the documented, you know, reports and everything to show this long case of domestic violence that was between OJ and Nicole. They had hair evidence. They had hairs consistent of that of Simpson found on the on the beanie that we mentioned at Nicole's house. Hair consistent with that of OJ found on Ron Goldman's shirt, which should be like a big one because it's like if you're innocent and didn't do anything, why is your hair on his shirt? I know. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. If this was like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to keep going. Um <laughs> I'll I'll say my thought at the end. The next is fiber evidence. Cotton fibers consistent with the carpet in the Bronco were found on the glove at Rockingham. The next, fibers consistent to the carpet from the Bronco were found on the beanie at Nicole's house. Right. Weird. Next, blood evidence. So we've already mentioned some of it. First is killer drop blood near shoe prints at Nicole's house. Blood dropped at Bundy, which is obviously like her. I just feel weird calling it that. I know that's a street name, but it just makes me think of fucking Ted. I'm Every sorry. time. Same, same. <laughs> that's why I keep like saying Nicole's house. Uh, blood dropped at Nicole's house was the same type as OJ's. About 0.5% of the population would match. A very, 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 very small amount. Simpson had those cuts that we talked about on his hand that were fresh on the day of the after the murder, the blood in the Bronco, the blood in the foyer and master bedroom of his home, blood found on his driveway and blood on the socks. So we got a lot of blood evidence. And here's the thing, though, like, unfortunately, as crazy as it sounds during this time, like DNA evidence didn't necessarily have as much of a hefty weight as it should have. Because they were still trying to understand right. it. It was really complicated. And yes, people like didn't understand the jargon. And it was like mm-hmm. in the early kind of conception of it. So like a lot of professionals only used like that particular type of jargon. And I just don't think yeah. like, I don't think attorneys knew how to like ask questions at this point to get yeah. like definite, like there's no other person on the fucking planet. Literally, yeah. And then that's like the thing too, like you have to think if the lawyers who are eating, breathing, living this case don't qu- can't quite like, you know, conceptualize that, then what's gonna what how is the jury going to like, I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Right. They're not right. going to be able to understand the weight that this evidence has. I feel yes. I don't know. The left glove found at 
at Nicole's house and the right glove found at OJ's house are Eris light gloves size extra large. Nicole Brown bought a pair of Eris light XL gloves in 1990 at Bloomingdale's. And Simpson wore Eris light gloves from 1990 through June of 1994. So for four years exclusively. Right. With those gloves. So there's that. the big gloves. He had two pairs. Yes. Shoe evidence. So shoe prints found at Nicole's house were from a size 12 Bruno. I'm saying this wrong. Bruno Malgi shoe. And the bloody shoe impression on the Bronco carpet is consistent with that same shoe. And Simpson wore a size 12. And there's pictures of Simpson wearing these fucking. I I love that. Whatever documentary it was. They're like those ugly ass shoes. Oh my God, I love it so much. Tara sent me that meme, and I'm just like, uh, literally, they were not cute, and he wore them like all the time, and then he just no longer had those shoes. Yes, and other evidence they presented, of course, was like the entire timeline that we have went over in previous episodes, and the talk of like how he reacted to the phone call of Nicole being murdered, well, death, because obviously the, the officer said like I didn't say murder, but like. She was a young, healthy woman. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's a lot that they go into. And the defense has a lot, too. And there is, don't get me wrong, even though I think OJ is guilty, there's a lot of problematic and fucking horrible stuff that happened with this this whole case, too, on top of what happened to Nicole and Ron. Like a thousand percent. Right. But we'll talk about that piece of shit person in the next episode because that's going to be a big thing that the defense is going to go after. So stay tuned for that. So, guys, that is where we are going to leave off for today. Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you enjoyed and are liking this series. I know we say this at the end of every episode, but Jess and I have enjoyed doing this deep dive so, so much. Um, so we can bring you guys better content and hopefully you learn something, especially with these notorious cases, because it's like mm-hmm. everybody knows, everybody knows, everyone knows that, you know, th- this case happened and the whole fucking if it doesn't fit quote and all of that shit. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whew. So we will see you back here in the next episode where Jess is going to go over all of the defense stuff and we will go over the verdict and jury selection and all kinds of info, yeah. all kinds of fun Fucking strap in peeps. Yes. It's going to be hefty, hefty, hefty. Which yes. is a commercial from that time period. <laughs> oh, God. All right, guys. Well, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and sign off and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.